Welcome to the Sleeping Barber Podcast. Grab a pen and paper. This is one of those shows you're going to want to take some notes on. We have Jenny Romanick, professor at the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, talking about her new book, Better Brand Health. We talk about why people often hate their brand trackers, loyalty, the laws of marketing, the trouble with differentiation, funnel, brand tracking tips, and there's a post pot at the end. This is a great show. Welcome to the Sleeping Barber Podcast, a place for business leaders to get the best and most credible information on marketing, strategy, and innovation. Your hosts, Mark Binkley and Vasily Sturos, share their experiences as they gather insights from the world's leading experts. Now, on with the show. Well, welcome to the show today. We have an incredible guest, uh, Jenny Romanek. Thank you so much for joining us. I'll give you a bit of an intro, but we're just thrilled to have you here. Um, Jenny is the uh, research professor at the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, author of uh, Building Distinctive Brand Assets, How Brands Grow, Part 2, and now uh, has added better brand health to the repertoire amongst, I don't know exactly how many <laughs> articles and papers and things uh, that are incredible and super insightful on marketing effectiveness and research and consumer behavior. And so we're just awesome, so thrilled to have you here. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. So we're really going to dig into the, the new book that you've got, Better Brand Health. Um, and, and just like so excited to talk to you about this because it's one of those things, brand health is one of those things that feels to me like it's such a fuzzy science in a lot of ways. Like people go ROAS, ROI so often, and then you get into brand and they kind of go, uh, it's, it's kind of artsy feely kind of stuff. And so I know you've done tons of work on this and, um, and, and so how brands grow was my introduction to you and the work that you've done at, at Ehrenberg Bass Institute. Um, why, why this book now? It seems to me like there's a, for me anyway, maybe it's just because the way I've been learning about you and the work you've been doing, but it, it kind of all has a connection. Like they're puzzle pieces that kind of fit together in my mind. Like where does this book come in, into your sort of way of thinking and how does it fit with other books that you've done? Yeah, well, interestingly enough, this is probably, if you looked at the timeline of the R&D I've done, this is the book I should have written first because this actually goes back to my very oh. first introduction in branding R&D. But it was a really tough one to write. Um, I was joking that um, a friend of mine was pregnant at the time I was writing the book and we were like, yeah, we'll give birth together. You'll give birth to a book, I'll give birth to a uh, yeah, another way around actually I'll give birth to a book she'll give birth to a baby um yeah anyway by the time the book came out her child was 18 months so I'm like yeah okay I had an elephant gestation you had a human gestation but we got there eventually um yeah so and the reason it took so long to write was first of all I'm, I'm trying to straddle two things one is I really want to get to the big picture of why we're doing this and the, um, you know, the, the strategic, the value add, why we invest the money in it. But then I also want to get mm -hmm. to the really, really nitty gritty little things that people do with the best of intent, but end up basically screwing up our data. So it, it's both strategic and tactical at the same time. And there's always a danger when you try to do two things, you end up doing neither well. So I'm hoping I've sort of mm -hmm. tread that line so that it's relevant for someone who is relying on the KPIs but not actually designing their own questionnaires 
but it's also relevant for someone who goes, yeah, I'm designing the questionnaires and I want it to be as well as possible. The other thing that took a bit longer too was that, um, so a lot of the early research we had done was in the 90s and the 2000s. And so I replicated a lot of the research we'd done because I wanted to be confident they still held today. So that meant I had to do a whole heap of fresh studies to check to see that everything still held. Um, so, yeah, so that also mm -hmm. dragged out the, the gestation time of the book. But this takes back to, you know, I, my early branding research. And it was in some respects the frustrations and um, deficiencies I saw in Brand Health Tracker fed into both the mental availability work because when I looked at the attributes of being tracked, I realised, hey, wait a sec, they're all about the brand and very little about the buyer, but isn't the buyer the mm. most important thing here? And secondly, when it came to mm -hmm. distinctive assets, you know, there was no measurement of them. So people were just making decisions um, because often you have advertising effectiveness information feeding into trackers. People were just making decisions about branding and advertising based on tracker results, but not really understanding what branding and advertising was all about. So I sort of went mm -hmm. and solved those, well, addressed those two issues first, and then I could come back and go, so what does this mean for how this feeds into how you can better track this thing called brand health? Hmm. Is the book, and you've talked about this just now about, you know, the strategic and tactical and balancing that. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, I'm curious, is, is the book for, it sounds like it's for both those people, but is it for, does it really only apply to big brands or can it be applied to small brands as well? Or is there some kind of uh, matrix that you've got in place that would, or B2B or B2C? Does it really matter in that sense? Well, I've tried to cater to all different types of industry. So it's not so much about, so what I've tried to do is to factor in when there are different types of um, category buying. Because how people buy the category mm -hmm. affects um, two key metrics, which is how you capture category buying and how you capture brand buying. So in there, there are sections for if you've got a repeat purchase type market, which most C CPG goods are, but some services are as well. Um, if you're in a services stroke subscription type market, if you've got a durable where you've got a long inter-purchase time period, how do you adapt the measures mm -hmm to account for that, those differences. But there are a lot of measures that actually the type of category you're in doesn't matter. Now, in terms of the big brand versus the mm. small brand, um, it's actually, again, for both. If you've already got a tracker whereby um, you're you know, pretty happy with it, then there's some things that hopefully will help you improve it. Some things you can cut out, some tests you can do to see is that am I on the right path with that, um, that allow you to just up the quality of it. If you either mm -hmm. don't have a tracker or you're starting from scratch, which is often what happens with smaller organisations, um, there's actually a, basically a roadmap of what you can do. And actually on my website, I've actually got a, a Word version that you can download that basically you fill in your stuff for it so that you can actually use the template mm -hmm. and then adapt it as you want to. So it basically mm -hmm. caters for people who are – relying on an agency who does all the work for them. And I'm hoping the agencies themselves read that book as well and apply the knowledge. But also for the more DIY, sure. I want to get a read on my brand health. I can't afford to go to a big agency house. Because um, a lot mm -hmm. of the analyses and things to do are, are quite simple, can be done with basic analysis programs and then Excel. 
Um, so you don't need a, a, a complicated statistical or mathematics background in order to work with most of the metrics that I'm putting forward. Yeah, that makes sense. When when we're looking at, you know, and the one thing that, that kind of caught my eye as well is like it's it's also written in a very succinct way because it can be in the hands of the practitioners as you're as you're calling it. But even a CMO could potentially pick it up and also force and kind of drive conversations either strategic conversation with his his or her team uh, a lot differently. Um, when you're, if we take a step back, what problem uh, were you looking to solve with with this book? Or at least what were you seeing in the industry that potentially, you know what, kind of like, you know what, we got to get a handle on this because we're missing one big part of it. Well, some people, well, first of all, people constantly telling me how much they hate their brand trackers. People just go, yeah, I hate it. I hate sitting through it. I hate getting the 200-slide deck. It's so boring to sit through the presentation because nothing seems to change. Uh, and, and, and then to the extreme, some people actually cancelling them. Um, I had a really interesting chat mm. with um, Bruce McCall, who was the, the CMO of Mars and who um, was an industry professor with us for a period of time when he left that role. And he was talking about how, you know, just, he just cancelled it. He said, this is useless. And not just the cost of the tracker. He said often it involved like a full-day presentation. So the cost of my staff having to mm. listen to mm-hmm. that and then not come out with anything that they could actually do. Because I just went, yeah, I don't need to do this. So we had a really interesting discussion of because I actually think it's really important if it's done right because it's the one window we have into the buyer mind. Nothing else gives us that information. And that's where the battle of our brands happens in buyers' minds. We can't see that. We can only see the outcomes. But if we ask the right questions, we can hopefully get some sort of indication of what's going on in there. And if we have, through our marketing activities, laid the foundations that gives our brand the best chance next time that buyer goes into a buying situation. Yeah, I, it, there's, um, I, I want to ask more specific questions about the book and the questions and, and that kind of stuff. But I was, I was really excited about I, I I bought the Ehrenberg Bass marketing textbook mm-hmm. um, just for fun. <laughs> a real fan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but there was a line in there as I was kind of prepping for this. There's a line in there. I'm like, oh, this would be great. There's a, uh, and I, I can't remember who it was credited to, to writing it, but it's, the sentiment was, you don't need to, you don't need to test guys for pregnancy because guys, generally speaking, don't have a uterus and therefore aren't going to be pregnant. And so, um, and, and there was a comment about metrics in general kind of mm-hmm. being like that yep. in relation to the laws of marketing you guys have found there's things you just don't need to track and so there may there's so many metrics that are out there um i was just wondering it, does that sentiment relate to brand tracking i know there's mm-hmm. tons of metrics for like google and facebook and we get caught up in a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's depending on um, time of decade, who you're speaking to, there are, there are several different ways people tackle this. So one is, yes, of course, ubiquitous dashboard that has everything in there and everyone's just hoping something goes up and worried if something goes down and then you, you know, kind of soothsay, oh, that was because of this happened here and so that's why that's there. Um at the other extreme, you have the silver bullet single metric where everyone goes, no, I just want the one number I need. 
Um, and, you know, you know the net promoter score touted itself as that. But you see this in most right. of the um, most research houses offer a single metric that's supposed to roll up all the different elements of brand health. Um, and to me, that's um, so the idea that you can have a single metric that captures the range of possible effects you can have given the variety of marketing inputs on people's brains, the, the, the variety of buyers and how they interact with the category just seems, it just seems ludicrous, really. Um, the idea that you can roll it up into one metric just doesn't make logical sense because if you have a case where all of your metrics move in the same direction, so they all go up or they all go down, then why do you have multiple? Mm -hmm. Yeah. If they move in mm -hmm. different directions, then the apparent simplicity of a combination measure is lost because if it goes up, you have to go back and go, well, what, what was it that actually went up if you want to work out how to do anything? Mm -hmm. um, and, but even more of a risk is that if you have metrics that you roll up together that can move in different directions, that means stability means nothing because you could have something go up and something go down and cancel each other out and you look like you're fine and dandy, but actually there's a problem or an opportunity depending mm -hmm. on what goes up and what goes down. So I've never understood the logic of that. And I think, I think it's actually quite dangerous to rely on that. Um, so I'm a horses for courses type of person, um, you know, where you have, you know, you know, horse racing when you pick the, the, you know, horses on a wet track versus a dry track, you know, depending on your objective, you'll have different metrics that are going to be more useful at the time. And so some metrics are more ubiquitous that you want to continually track and some are more that you turn on and off depending on the situation. Um, and that allows you to have mm -hmm. a sort of base set of metrics, but at any one point in time, you're only really focusing on a subset of those because they're the ones most relevant to our situation. But I will say we do need more R&D on this that takes this approach because, you know, that will help us refine that even more. Mm -hmm. I have... <laughs> you look the, puzzled. The, 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 you look, you, you sorry, look worried, Mark. Like, oh, yeah, you, yeah, you look worried, Mark. Is <laughs> <laughs> anything well, that's disturbed you? I don't want to disturb you. <laughs> you know, this is what sometimes I fear when we start asking questions and our minds start meandering it down other, you know, under other paths. And <laughs> I would love, you know, welcome to my we'll world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, I, I wonder if you can just take a moment because you talked about like when you think about some of these metrics and, you know, there's some of it there. Mm -hmm. Everyone talks about them like net promoter score, as you mentioned, share of voice or share of search brand reputation, et cetera, et cetera. What would you maybe identify as being like those core ones that you can always have ubiqu ubiquitous, as you said, and what would you maybe be those outliers that would be those that would come in in certain circumstances? Okay. Um, so it's going to be a little bit complicated to answer that fully because I think it would okay. take quite a bit of time because then I'd have to explain why of those. Um, Fair enough. And also, mm -hmm. it's important to remember that while just because a metric is ubiquitous, like is recommended generally, doesn't mean there's no um, effort you have to take to calibrate it to adjust for things like brand size. Fair enough. 
Yeah, of um, course. So, yeah, so so that's where we, we have to be careful. But I'll give you an example of a, a switch on, switch off metric that's a different time. And that is something like brand rejection. So brand rejection is useful to assess because if you have a high rejection rate, then that does mean building mental availability will fall a bit on deaf ears because people will think of your brand and go, yeah, I don't like that. I'm not buying it. Mm -hmm. But what we know about brand rejection generally is tends to be very low and there's only certain, and it doesn't change when it's low unless something external event happens. So it's a case of you benchmark it, you check to see if you're normal. And then if you are normal, you only worry about it for new brands, potentially smaller brands that suddenly ramp up their marketing activities. You might just keep an eye on it because might have more people trialing it that might you know, have a reaction to it. Or if you've made a major change or someone's made a major change to say product formulation, packaging, et cetera, that people might not be happy with. Okay. So you benchmark it, you understand your normal, and then you think about, well, where are the circumstances where this is going to change? Because the reality is it's not going to just magically like triple overnight. Our brains don't no. work that way. If it does increase, there's usually a reason behind it. So mm-hmm. that's, and you usually will know that reason. It's it's not like people are operating in this magic vacuum. You will know if your rejection rate has gone up because you'll probably know what's caused it. And if you don't, it's easy enough to collect that as part of the data as well by following up on that small group typically that do reject. Why? And if you look at those reasons for rejection, often in most cases you find people actually don't really have a reason why they reject a brand. It's not like this is a hard, fast rule. So that is another reason why we don't worry about rejection so much. But it tends to be one of the one of the ideas that holds marketers back from this idea that you've got to grow through expanding your customer base and acquisition is this idea that there's a barrier. People have thought about us and don't like us. That's why they don't buy us without realising actually, you know, the vast majority of people don't buy you because they're not even thinking about you. You have a mental availability problem, not an attitude problem. So that initial benchmark can be really useful ongoing to say, hey, we don't have a problem with, you know, our problem isn't that people think of us and have a reason why they're not going to buy us. Our problem is they're not thinking of us in the first place. That's a great example, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. My... Um... <laughs> The so okay so there's metrics out there that uh, I, I know you study word of mouth mm-hmm. uh, specifically you've got, you've done a lot of work in that it's a space. hobby um, yeah uh, and, and V and I recently are still in school doing some MBA stuff and and we were just talking before the recording about some of the differences between the philosophies of uh, marketing and the you know the the academics that are leading some of the conversations and building up the textbooks and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me like a lot of uh, marketing and V and I have chatted about this, but a lot of the marketing material that we're getting through school here is really focused on in course after course. It's kind of like brand love, generate f- fans, get word of mouth and that drives your growth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you know, and it, it literally in classes, I'm like, hey, have you guys ever heard of like Jenny Romanek and this little company called the Ehrenberg Bass Institute or this institution called the Berenberg Bass Institute? 
And and so there's like an instant um, resentment almost to something that they hold mm-hmm. dear to them. Is that a thing that you see um, on your end? Well, I, I've forgotten who said it, um, but, you know, this idea science advances one death at a time. Um, yeah, the problem is people don't like, if you've been spending all of your time telling people something is true, it actually takes a lot of courage to go, wow, I've learned something new and now I have to rethink what I'm doing um, and what I'm telling other people. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a big problem is I just always ask people, to, where's the evidence? Um, show me the evidence. Yeah. Um, and I'm happy. I mean, the interesting thing about a lot of scientific debates uh, they prosper when you have two sides who not only have differing views on how the world works, but they have differing evidence to support their views. And then it's about testing, combating, because no piece of evidence in itself is perfect. And it's about that weight of evidence and each of them fighting, going, well, I've got this bit of evidence that says this. And someone's going, well, I've got this bit of evidence that says this. <sighs> when it comes right. to loyalty, love, advocacy, it's a pretty weak science debate because I've got to see the evidence on the other side. So it's it's that's the problem is um, there's nothing to challenge other than to present the evidence and say, hey, look at this. It may lead you to rethink um, what it is. I remember having a discussion with someone who um, thought that top of mind awareness was the best metric ever. That was his metric. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, well, here's a couple of pieces of evidence that might lead you to rethink that. And you know what his reaction was? I don't care about your evidence. This is what I believe. (laughs) And I'm like, so then I tried a different tack to say, okay, so can you share with me why you believe that? And when I had that debate on LinkedIn about differentiation, I decided to try a different tact. And rather than presenting my side, I thought I'd just ask, why do you believe that? And mm-hmm. actually go and interrogate the evidence that has apparently formed other people's beliefs because I believe then I can maybe understand why they think that way, but when I've read the evidence, I don't understand why they think that way. So that then makes it very mm-hmm. hard to argue against. So all I can do is say we're putting the evidence out there as best we can promoting it as best we can and hopefully encouraging people to rethink as best we can and doing things, writing a textbook that hopefully some marketing educators take on board, but it's hard for them to do that Mm -hmm. if they don't really believe it themselves. Yeah. Well, and and specifically related to the, um, let's call brand love, brand advocacy kind of track where people are in that mindset um, that loyalty drives growth and then word of mouth is the thing that you're all looking for. And, uh, you know, there's that, uh, I think it was, I can't remember how to say his name probably, Reinheld, Frederick, Frederick? Reichheld, yeah. The, you know, cost, yeah, Reichheld. Um, you know, it costs 5X more to make a customer than keep, keep a customer. That, that actually wasn't from that was actually from a study. Oh, yeah, that was actually from a study that was done in the 1980s um, called the TARP study. So uh, there was a later TARP study. This is an earlier one uh, that was actually a big working party set up to work out what is the return on investment for satisfying customer complaints. 
Okay, so so you know, so what is it? So if you, we invest in a team that will listen to customers complaining and resolve their complaints, what's the ROI from that? And so they did a study for General Motors where they worked out that okay, if about fifty percent of people rebuy a car, right? Mm-hmm. So therefore, the cost of advertising is what gets us all the new customers. And the cost of satisfying complaints is what gets us keeping the old customers. So can you start to see the flaw in the maths here? So all of the costs of advertising, everything external, that's what gets us all that half new customers. And the cost of satisfying complaints, well, that's what keeps, because it's only the ones that complain would not rebuy us. All the ones who did not complain, of course, they're going to rebuy us. Um, and so, you know, this is, and so that's how they got that ratio, um, that then has been reworked and re- sort of thing, but it was faulty maths to begin with. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if ever there's evidence, it seems that that's like at the center, that study is mm-hmm. at the center, I misattributed, but it seems to be that that's at the center of a lot of the evidence there on the other side of, um, some of the work you've been involved in, there's a few laws and we've talked uh, last year to um, Nicole mm-hmm. from your team about this, but it, it, she was great. She's amazing. Um, but for the sake of this conversation, I think it'd be, if you could just give us kind of a brief overview. I know double jeopardy brand user profiles and duplication of purchase law, they are kind of important laws to understand the brand metrics. I feel that you're talking about when you're, when we're, building better brand health. Mm-hmm. And so if you can, I was hoping you might be able to just briefly describe those and why those are important to understanding what metrics you should be measuring. Well, they're, they're actually important to understand what philosophy you should take. I mean, a little bit on the metrics because there's a lot you can mm. do with good brand um, buying and category buying metrics, but they more actually speak to the philosophy of tracking. And so, so if you take Double Jeopardy, for example, which is small brands are penalised twice, they have many fewer users who are slightly less loyal, that and the when you look at how brands change over time, that's where we get this idea that um, we grow through acquisition, expanding the customer base. So from a brand health tracking perspective, mm-hmm. that tells us immediately that the people who we really need to make sure we're reading are like non-brand buyers because they're the ones that don't buy us this year that if we grow something will happen that they will buy us next year Mm. so that's Mm. one part so if you take something like the um brand user profiles actually no i'll do duplication of purchase second so duplication of purchase is this idea that your brand's customers share you share your brand's customers with other brands in line with competitor share and this can be either at the same point in time if you're talking about a repertoire market where people buy multiple brands, so most packaged goods, et cetera, or it can be over time if you're talking about things like durables or services where people might change their supplier. There's actually, a, you know, it's a predictable pattern how that happens largely. So that tells us that mm-hmm. when we're looking at the market, we have to account for no matter what we are or look like our biggest competitors will be the biggest brands in the market and so we always keep keep an eye on them because if we grow that's where most of our customers will come from if we decline that's where most of our customers will go so we need to make sure we've got a good read on what's Mm -hmm. going on there 
Um, the third is brand user profiles, which basically says your customer base will mimic the category customer base. And so will all brands in the marketplace. Um, when brands have tried to skew away from this, they've usually worked really, really hard for very small skews. Um, but most of the time, there's a profile of who buys a category and all the brands they buy, um, they, their, their customer base is profiled very similar. So that tells us when we're recruiting, we need to make sure that we have a profile that resembles a category and not skew it according to who our supposed target buyer is or who our brand buyer is. Now, we may have a more desirable target within it, and we can incorporate mm -hmm. that in the sample, but you can't mm -hmm. correct for a biased view if you have a biased sample to begin with. So this tells us that we need to have a sample that resembles a category so that then if we do want to do any cuts by particular groups or types, we're drawing from a representative frame. And do these laws, so, sorry, Mark, if you... Yeah, so do these laws actually then hold true across both B2B and B2C? Are there subtle nuances yes. that you... Okay. Yeah, we did. Um, I did a piece with the um, LinkedIn B2B Institute that has, um, with mm -hmm. my colleagues, uh, John Dawes, about just basically how B2B brands, brands grow and how B2B brands compete. And it shows that the laws apply in those situations as well. Just often in B2B, it's harder to get the data to see it. You know, category-wide right. unbiased data is really difficult to get. Um, so we've demonstrated in categories where we can get it. The, the um, brand user profile one, is, I've never thought about this before, but from what you're saying, if I'm understanding it correctly, you've got a profile uh, for arguments like, let's let's just say it's, um, a 50 50 split between men and women who are all 35 years old. If for whatever reason I say I'm only going to go after uh, women in the category because I have this profile that says mm -hmm. Sally is our core buyer, then I'm arbitrarily shrinking the potential that I exactly. have of growing the brand because I've just now cut the buyer segments in half. Well, two things there. Or, so, or the, yeah. the potential, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, well, the first thing is that's premised on the assumption that you can find female-only um, media to advertise in. And I don't know if you saw the initial right. studies looking at programmatic and its ability to even work out if you're male or female was actually pretty miserable and that um, – ads that were targeted to males still had about 30% female in the audience when they followed up and found out who actually mm -hmm. got it. So that's the first assumption. But the second assumption is even if you could, yes, you're, you're cutting yourself out. And you're also typically, if it's more specialized media or a specialized request, you're paying more for it. So you're paying more to have a more challenging objective that probably won't actually pay out in the long run. Um, and when we do see, so we do sometimes see these deviations. One of the easiest ways to do it is to have a product range that does a thing. So, for example, if you're, say, selling underwear, if you don't have men's underwear, then your your um, customer base will skew to female. But that's what then limits sure. your potential because you might get the odd man on Valentine's Day coming in. I used to work in a lingerie department in a department store, so um, that's always quite entertaining. Okay. We used, used to have a whole range of men coming in and going, um, I want to buy something for my partner. Uh, she's about, 
her size and would point to some yeah. random woman over there where I'd have to go over and say, excuse me, what is your bra size? <laughs> or the ones that I may or may not have like done long that lists of, they've, they've written every single number, like they've gone through their partner's underwear and written every single number, not knowing what any of them means and hands me a bit of paper with that sort of stuff going, uh, I think it's on here somewhere. Can you help me? And I would just sort of get them something and then say, and just remember, keep the receipt and tell her she's welcome to bring it back. Um, so, yeah, so it's always it's always a great example for me. But, yeah, but that's an example. An a for effort. A for effort. Yeah. Oh, hey, I, I just, uh, you know, you, you, they would, they, it, you could tell it was a challenging buy for them. But um, yeah, yeah, yes, I saw a lot of the women afterwards in January who were returning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why bought this? I'm like, anyway, um, yeah. So, so yeah. So there's. So you can actually artificially create that sort of skew if you don't have a product range that suits or you really do deliberately exclude. So, you know, there's some insurance companies that are only for women or only for people over 50. Um, so you can do that. But mm-hmm. then that does, as you point out, limit your growth potential. If you're only going to sell to people over 50, that means everyone 49 and below is not your customer. That means you even the best you can do in terms of um, market potential is if you got every single customer over 50. Yeah. And I, I suspect part of that is the idea we just were talking about differentiation versus distinctiveness. But I imagine part of that drive is because of an effort to become more differentiated than competitors. And so you pick a niche yeah. as opposed to picking a category. Yeah. And that's the thing is, is yeah. this idea that there is, it's, it's a, you know, it's an easier battle to, it's easier to be a, to fight a small battle than to fight a big one but actually i don't think that's necessarily the case this the challenge is you fight a small battle you've got and you win you get small rewards um whereas you you know resources of you might don't have to win you just have to kind of succeed at a big battle to probably outdo what you could have done at a small battle um but having said that i will say that the um you know it has been put forward that maybe differentiation has a greater role in new brands um, that there's been not as much robust research that I think we do need to investigate more. So I'm not willing to concede the point because I haven't mm-hmm. seen the evidence, but I do think better testing is needed of it. One of the big challenges mm-hmm. I have um, is I don't understand how people measure differentiation because when I look through the 16 papers that were given to me to um, prove that differentiation was really important for growth, well, six of them were conceptual papers that didn't have any measurement. Uh, about four of them used um, price elasticity as a measure of differentiation, which is surely an outcome, not an input, that if mm-hmm. you are supposedly a differentiated brand, one of the supposed benefits is you will have a lower elasticity that you can change your price and fewer people will leave you because um, mm-hmm. you've locked them in in some way, shape or form. Um, and then the others had really quite unusual indirect measures. So I'd love to see someone who you know is a mm. big proponent of differentiation tell me quickly how do you, how do you measure it? Because then we can do really good testing. Mm-hmm. You can't measure without operationalizing something. Um, and I, I think they're a little bit deficit in how these things get operationalized, and that holds it back. It's easy to believe a myth if there's no testing. 
Sure. The the last thought of just on the the laws that you were talking about, um, the sub- subscription versus repertoire markets. I find the difference between those so fascinating. It was like a real epiphany yeah. for me to have that conversation when we were talking to Cole, I think it was yeah. originally. Um, and so do the laws apply in those categories or I don't even know if you call them category market types. Is mm-hmm. that a fair way to describe those? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, yes. Market types, category types, buying types. I don't know. It's, it's a, a bit hard. It's like the label B2B. Often people use a label B2B to imply one group of, categories but actually if you look within b2b there's all the different types of markets there some are repertoire markets some are subscription where you you know buy for a period of time and then you you know so usually the definition of subscription is you have one brand that satisfies your requirements and then if you use another brand you defect from the brand you have but subscription markets mm-hmm. have evolved, and so we now have subscription tre- streaming services where people do subscribe to a streaming service, but they subscribe to multiple yeah. to satisfy their needs. So, you know, we've got right. to account for these different changes in how. So I always look to how do people buy and focus on that rather than necessarily worry about the labels per se. I can see mm-hmm. I can see your point now how these laws are actually more about philosophy uh, than the metrics uh, behind us kind of like you, you started off. But... For brand health, for brand performance yeah. metrics, they're very important for brand performance metrics. But when I'm talking about brand health metrics, I'm talking about stuff in people's heads, memory metrics. And they're yeah. more about how and who we get those memories from and who we consider important in our tracking um, than they are about um, necessarily – testing double jeopardy on every data set you have. So every if you collect the data right um, for brand usage, you will see double jeopardy every single wave. So once you know that, you don't need to test it every single wave. But if a new brand comes in, you might test it to check to see, is this an exception to double jeopardy? Is it a niche brand or a change of pace brand or if it's normal? So, again, it's something you can pull into your wheelhouse when something in the market changes that makes it worthwhile. But for a normal tracking report where there's not much happened in the market, you don't, wouldn't, I wouldn't even worry about the laws of growth as a component in terms of reporting of brand health. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. Um, when we think about, you know, marketers and oh, I guess most marketers, this may be a generalization, but, you know, everyone's really comfortable with the idea of, you know, top of funnel brand, ma- sorry, brand tracking metrics, you know, things like you know, awareness, uh, recall, preference, et cetera. Now, those measurements are generally thought as a way to kind of build that top of mind awareness. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on these three metrics? Do you, do they have any validity? Do, are we misthinking them a little bit or in their context? I don't understand funnels. Well, I don't understand why people like funnels so much. And the, and the reason because is typically what comes out of them are ratios. And I really don't like ratios or indices because the only way you can get a high ratio or indices is if you've got a low base. And again, you're adding a low complication. If your number changes, you don't know, was it the numerator or the denominator that changes? And also what often happens mm-hmm. is people don't calibrate it for brand size. So, you, you will, of course, your funnel will look great if you're a big brand and look you know, kind of miserable if you're a small brand. That's what you expect. And that's where, you know, having the ability to really thinking about what is this adding in value in our understanding of 
um, how the stuff in people's heads is influencing their future buying. Um, I don't understand it and I worry that it gives people a misleading view that buyers are kind of like shuffling down this little corridor. Oh, I've just gone past the awareness door. Right, next. Next is the interest door. Oh, I've just gone past the interest door. Next is the desire door. Ooh. Oh, there's a, oh, I don't know if I'll go through the desire door yet. I might just hang around in interest for a while. I'm not sure I'm up to desire yet. Um, and then go through. And there's this, this idea of this chain of buyers going through. Um, and I will say, it depends on what decade you're in. It's either a funnel or a pyramid. Um, and, um, right. you know, and it's basically the right. same thing turned upside down. So, yeah, sort of stuff. Just so, flipped up, yeah. yeah. Yeah, So, you know, depending Sometimes on the... Sometimes they even go like... Pyramid oh yeah, sideways. Yeah, I've yeah. Seen I've seen that. the sideways yeah. ones as yeah. well, which I don't know what they are. Um, but yeah, so <laughs> so to me that gives a really misleading view that if you look at any metrics of people buying over time, so you know if you look at you know, packaged goods is the easiest thing to do this in because there's a lot of household panel data. Um, if you take people's buying this year, so take a group of people. And you go, this is how many times they bought the brand this year. So you have some zeros, some ones, some twos, some threes, some fours going through. And then you cross-tab it with their buying in the next year. And what you'll see is it's not like a – and do this for a growing brand. You actually do this for any brand, but if you want to look at it from a growing brand, do it for a growing brand, a brand that grew. And what you see, it's not a nice jump up where everyone's gone up one. So the zeros by one, the ones by two, the twos by three. What you'll see is there's some zeros you buy five, some twos that buy three, some fours that now buy two. Right. People are, are, are all over the place. And that's basically how buying happens. It's not a linear process. And so funnels and pyramids or whatever you want to call them, they kind of give that impression that we're just slowly marching people to that end point of you will now buy. And that's just not how it works. So so I worry about them from a mathematical perspective because I think the numbers are, are misleading and not very helpful. But I also worry about them from a conceptual perspective of how they, they mean, oh, we've got a problem. We don't have enough people with interest in our brand. Mm-hmm. You know, what? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't understand what you do yeah. with that, which I think is partly the problem with trackers that – follow that philosophy is coming up with actionable what do we do with this as becomes very difficult when you've got Mm -hmm. a concept so abstract that no one really quite knows what it means yeah and going back to your original point like if if you are a small brand you would expect that people many people don't know you and so your awareness number would be relatively low compared to say you know, pick the giant brand in your category. Yeah, but that, see, that then comes into a separate thing. So if you're talking about saying that brand awareness, um, so you've got, and I've got a, one of the first chapters on this because I think it's a really important metric that people don't understand. What I will say is if you are one of the companies that reports top of mind awareness or spontaneous awareness to your board, you might want to read the book because it may lead you mm-hmm. to rethink what you're actually reporting to them. Because it's one of the most common metrics reported to board. Um, MPS has probably overtaken it in popularity, but um, I'll leave that for particularly mm-hmm. my colleague John Dawes, who's done some great work on that. Um, but um, yeah, it's it's sort of thing. So if you think about something like brand awareness and say prompted brand awareness, have a think about it. 
Do you need to track the prompted brand awareness of your brand buyers? So these are people who bought you. What do you oh, think they probably buy you? Yeah. Well, no, because yeah. they, yeah. Yeah, they're yeah. going to be 100%. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, or close to it. You often get a bit of a wobble in there, but yeah. where some people forget because yeah. it's important to remember no metric is perfect. So that's mm-hmm. why I'm not a fan of making responses to one metric be dependent on responses to another. Um, right. A few exceptions to that rule where you're dealing mm-hmm. with the same concept and simplicity and then complexity, like penetration and frequency. Um, it's more effective to ask everybody the similar penetration measure and only those people who say yes, the more complex frequency measure than it is to ask everybody for every brand, how many times did you buy and have zero in it? It seems more efficient to do it in one question, mm-hmm. but actually from a buyer perspective, it's it's more complex to do that. It forces them to do so much more cognitive processing than if you split it up. But other times, you know, people will filter for prompted brand awareness and forget that brand or prompted brand awareness not a perfect measure particularly if you give someone 30 brands to tick it's very easy to miss a couple that you didn't know but you you do your job answering i've I've ticked 25 of them um (laughs) and then you you know just want to move Mm -hmm. on um so we often we often we either don't trust the responses of buyers or we expect them to be perfect and actually the reality is somewhere in between We've got to set up the conditions to get as accurate as response as possible, but be aware there's mm-hmm. limitations in anything when you're relying on recall from memory or you're dredging memories out. Um, so, yeah, so if you think about prompted brand awareness, so then well, what is the metric that's really useful there? Well, how about the people that don't buy you? Yeah. Wouldn't it be interesting to know if they have you mm-hmm. in the brain in that category? Yeah. So if I said to you, you know, avocado do you realize that's actually a mattress brand and not just a fruit from mexico now if you're selling avocado green mattresses you want to know that people have avocado green in the mattress part of their brain because otherwise Mm -hmm. none of the other memories are going to go up and if you you see they see avocado as a word they're going to think guacamole that's what i think anyway um, yeah. So, so that's that's the, those sorts of things. So, so thinking about what these metrics actually are used for and how they're helpful and who they're useful from allows us to really hone down and um, get to the point. So, if you include brand buyers in your prompted brand awareness metric, you will just get a, a relationship with brand size because big brands have more users, and of course, they are all aware of the brand. Little brands have fewer users, but if you only do non-buyers. Yeah, you get a bit of that, but you start to see the nuances. Oh, the small brand that's advertising has much higher brand awareness amongst its own users than the small brand that's not. And you can start to see some Mm -hmm. of those nuances in there that give you more sensitivity in terms of the metrics. Right. I have like 8 million questions that I'd love to ask you. And I know we don't have time for the 8 million. So. Yeah, that, that might be a little bit um, much, Terry. Might I, I might need another bottle of water um, if that's the case. Or actually a bottle of gin. Yeah. I can see my gin here. I might need that if we're going to go for the 8 million questions. You won't get much of an answer after about 100, but I will feel better about it. Okay. <laughs> It might numb the pain. We may send you some gin, and we may take you up on it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I have my own. Um, but do you have, like, okay. 
Okay. If if you had ten more minutes or so, is that okay with you? Okay, great. Um, because so there's a couple of things that I'd love to just touch on the, the awareness part and category entry points. I find fascinating uh, because the, I, I think of it as more situated, not because I've thought of this by my own, but I read your book and you know I've been thinking about this and stewing on it for a while. So to me, it's like situational awareness versus just general awareness. Mm-hmm. And then there's also from the book that you've got the the mantra around designing for the category, analyze for the buyer and reporting for the brand. I, I think that's I a really that. interesting yeah, approach. And so I just wanted to at least dig into those two things if, if that's mm. okay with you. Yeah. So, yeah. So um, the whole idea of designing for the category, yes, category entry points is part of that. But it's not only that. It also affects your screening, your brand list. Um, all of the parts of the questionnaire. I mean, I liken it to you should be able to take your brand health tracker design, you know, your questionnaire, how you've done something, everything, hand it to a different size competitor and they would go, yeah, we would use this. If there's things mm-hmm. they would not use, that's probably where you're biasing your tracker. So I encourage people to put the hat on of a bigger competitor, a smaller competitor, and go, how would I change the questionnaire if I was working for brand X or brand Y? And when you do that, you start to get a sense of that perhaps there's something that you're introducing that is biasing the view that you're getting of the market. So that's what design for the category is all about. And, yeah, category entry points came out of that because my observation of trackers is, yeah, a lot of them were about the brand and very little was about the buyer. And I went, but doesn't it all start in the buyer's minds in them thinking of brands in the first place? Um, So that's where Mm -hmm. that comes there. Now, analyze for the buyer comes from the idea that it's really interesting. Whenever you do any piece of research, um, Always you get requests for, can you cut it by males and females, by age, etc. Usually you find those differences are pretty trivial. The biggest difference in people mm-hmm. giving responses is whether they've had direct experience with the brand or not. If they're a buyer stroke right. user versus not. That's where you see the big difference and that flows into everybody. So analysing for the buyer means recognising that someone who has had direct brand experience has very different and richer and easily more accessible memories than somebody hasn't. And so I need to separate mm-hmm. those out so that I can see, because I know the people who have it, haven't. If I'm going to grow, they're going to move into column A. And so I need to be able to see what they're about. So analysing for the buyer is about giving yourself the best chance to see audiences that grow. And then... Report for the brand acknowledges the fact that the big difference in metrics is whether you're a big brand or a small brand. And we need this because if you don't take into account the context of the brand, what happens with big brands is, yeah, they get complacent. They score the highest on every metric. They do really well. All is good. And then suddenly sales go down. They're like, but my brand health is still so good. Why is that? And it's because a lot of the things, because they're so influenced by what people have done in the past and the people who are not going to buy you in the future don't know they're not going to buy you yet. And so their class is influencing in. Um, And so they don't 
see it properly. And if you calibrate for brand usage, you get a better sense of that. But also a small brand, if you have the expectations you should score similar to even a medium size, let alone a big brand, um, you will think everything is not working because you're hardly going to get there. But so you might abandon things that actually had traction, but you just didn't have the visibility, the right way to see it and the right understanding to know that, yes, your your score is still smaller than bigger, medium or bigger brands, but you scored more than you should. And that right. was what your marketing developed. And you're assuming that what you're scoring more than you should of is useful for buyers when they're in buying situations. You've laid those proper foundations that help your brand just have that bit more chance of being bought in the future. Thanks for describing that. Yeah. Have you got any other questions? Honestly, like if you, you said 8 million, I, I'd probably slot in a few within that. But honestly, Jenny, this has been incredible. Um, I Thank think you. for me, it, was just be, it would just be more, you know, what are the three most useful things that marketers can kind of take and improve on their brand health trackers right now, if you could advise uh, them today? Ugh. Yeah, there's almost quite a few. So the, the thing three, well, what I want to do is I'm, I'm doing my A to Z. Um, oh, don't that's right. following yes. my A to Z on LinkedIn. Yeah, I saw that, yeah. So today, right, right. I know you're not going to post this today, <laughs> and so it will be later, but today I'm actually talking about word of mouth-ish attributes. So these are attributes that often end up in brand lists of things like our brand people are talking about, has a lot of buzz about it, um, something I would recommend that kind of right. seem like they're sort of getting to word of mouth, but they're not. And so these clutter up our brand health, brand attribute lists when you actually think about what are we actually measuring here? Um, it's just such a really inefficient way to measure word of mouth, inefficient and incorrect. So if you've got those in your brand list, read the post, read the book, hopefully you'll be able to go, well, we can cut those X attributes out of it. <laughs> um, so that's mm -hmm. one thing. To, so yeah, there's um, second thing is have a look at how many times you measure do you like my brand? Because often you see multiple mm. measures that are worded differently, but essentially at the heart of them, they're measuring the same thing. Right. Again, there's some tests you can do to work out whether or not they're giving you very similar results, and if so, opportunity for consolidation. So we don't have to waste our money asking multiple times how people like our brand. And in the book I do have, I unpack attitude metrics because there tends to be a lot of things wrong with them. People think they can just come up with an attitude metric, and there are some things that you can do to make sure you've got a good one that you're giving everybody a home, including people with no attitude, because it is right. possible to know something and not have any feelings about it. So that was two. Mm -hmm. And the third one is um, think very carefully about asking questions unprompted. Think about what that's doing, why you're doing it, and why you think that's beneficial. Um, there's a lot of work in different sections, both in brand awareness, brand attributes, where I show you the patterns that are happening when you measure unprompted versus prompting and how they contaminate our responses and make it harder for us to see if we're likely to grow. So that's the yeah. other area I would encourage people to rethink. There are some instances where it is important to measure things unprompted, but we rely on it far too much to the detriment of data quality.
And make sure you follow Jenny, everyone that's listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, though, and the the A to Z They're posts amazing. are awesome. I've been reading all of them. They're great. Yeah, they're super been, fun. They've been fun to write because I, I do them every single day. <clears throat> so I didn't have that. I thought, wait, this is my commitment to building up my creativity. So every day I get up and I go, today's letter is whatever it is. So I have yeah. W, X, Y, and Z to go. Too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I did, the I did a song. I did a song. Yes, yes. That was, that was, I, I, I was pretty pleased with that one. Um, yep. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I just was, you know, Bert inspired me. What can I say? Um, it was very lucky because he had, he had three of his top 10 songs that have love in them. And the other two were what the world needs now is love, sweet love. And I went, yeah, that's not going to work. I don't know how I can turn that into. And the other one was um, this man's in love with you or something at like that. And I went, yeah, that's not going to work. So that. I was very grateful to Dion Warwick for her rendition of um, what do you get when you fall in love? Because I went, ah, okay, that one I can use. There it is. Yeah. Is. So uh, sometimes inspiration comes from the weirdest places. Um, but yes, yes, yeah. Well, thank you for the inspiration, Jenny. I appreciate all the work you've done and, and the rest of the team, too, at the Amber Bass Institute. It's been great for us personally, just speaking for V. Hey, oh, yeah. That, you know, it's nice having all this information and evidence that's there to help guide decisions. So really appreciate it. Pleasure. Yeah. And uh, good luck with the book launch. It's going to be great. I'm, I'm excited about getting my copy of it. And uh, it's going to be really uh, another great read for me. So I'm adding it to the library. Thank you. I'm glad now that we actually have physical availability because, God, that stuff's hard yeah. to manage. And there is a chapter oh, yeah. on physical availability in the book um, and whether it should be part of your brand health tracker. So, um, yes, and it was only in launching this book that I appreciate just how complex that can be. Mm-hmm. Fair point. Well, Thank you, thanks Jenny. again, Jenny. Appreciate it. Awesome. And now the post-pod discussion with V and Mark. Post-pod. Here it is. Let's go. Jenny Romanuk, we've made it. We've made it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She, I, I, I mean, we said this before, but like, I just really, I think this is, <clears throat> oh my gosh, I can't even speak right now. My Mark is starstruck. <laughs> yeah well i just really like talking yeah. to smart people and and there's lots of them who are much smarter than me so i appreciate the chance that we have to speak to people and whether you agree or not i love having the opportunity to have someone challenge the yeah. way i think and and it because it makes you better in my mind if you have these sort of forced or sort of rigid expect mental expectations of how things are going to be and how things should be and they'll never change and all that kind of stuff then i mean there's no room for growth so i just really like you know some of the thoughts that like as she's describing things honestly like my mind is just like what about this and what about that like literally i could probably sat there and asked me well and she caught us both because like she answered a question and we're both like Mm, um, okay. Yeah. I'm sure like we're thinking in a million different directions right now. Hey, what are we going to ask now? Um, outside of like what's, yeah. what we've outlined, but it's because it is that, you know, at the end of the day, when you think about marketing and there is a sense of like a growth mindset and we have to make sure that we are rethinking 
old models, old ways of, of, of sure. you know, frameworks, et cetera, challenging them. And I think Jenny and Nierberg and Bax Institute do a, such a fantastic job, not only applying a lot of the science behind, you know, a lot of the laws that, 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 that they're bringing forth, but at the same time, it arms us as marketers with, I guess we, maybe we could just call it like evidence-based marketing, where we can go back to the board, we can go back to our leaderships and say, this is why we're doing it this way. And here's why we need additional funds yeah. to go down this route, whatever the case may be. And I think that's that's yeah. what the power of these conversations are. And and I'm with you, man. The fact that we've been offered this opportunity to talk to, talk to so many incredible leaders and thought uh, thought leaders, sorry, it's it's incredible. And Jenny, just like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we're like, there's just all these assumptions, so especially many. in marketing, partly because it's so young of a discipline, yeah. I would say. Um, and so not to fault marketing, but like science has gone through centuries of like yeah. bloodletting, right? Like that was the thing yeah. for a while there for, for medical people. Um, uh, and which turned out to not be so good after all. And so like the funnel as an example, there's a guy named, I think the guy who invented it was Elias St. Elmo Lewis. I don't know. In 1898. I just, I'm weird. I look up things like this. Because <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, yeah. like, you know, things are invented and like at one point it didn't exist and then some point it did. And so it was literally from like 1898 or at least that's what Wikipedia says. Um, so you got to wonder like, why did he invent it? What was it for? What was the original intent? Did people really buy that way? We remember talking to Roger Martin. He was talking about how ideas die hard. Or it was not, that's not his words. Yeah. Those are mine, but you know, like the evolution of science, there was some article that I have to go back and find the article linked to, but um, people hold on to these ideas for long periods of time and some of them catch fire and then become the accepted yeah. norm, even though they might be wrong. And so Jenny's comment about the funnel, like, yeah, why not look at it again? Like it might be useful, but is it really that useful? Is it as helpful as we think it is? Or do we just kind of blindly depend on it? Cause that's what everyone else does. I, yeah, I think it's the latter, you know, again, what it comes down when I think about the funnel and the purpose that it serves is just kind of visualize the, the different steps in the purchase of a product, right. Or a service. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's just a very linear and I love the analogy. I don't know. I could inside my head as she was kind of why I'm walking through like the, you know, the awareness yeah, yeah. door now. And, you know, it, it made, it poked fun in the fact that, you know, it isn't linear and, I don't think I, I still haven't seen something yet today that maybe builds in all the nuances that, you know, what a, today's consumer is actually faced with from a, if you think about like all the intersections of ads, of information overload, mm-hmm. all these things that are kind of constantly forcing us, it's hard to kind of compartmentalize and say, okay, well, this is what the new ADA model looks like or whatever it may be. Um, Mm -hmm. but I even struggle with it in the context that when you're trying to communicate that while it's very simple to communicate it, say to a C-level suite or executive leadership, the problem is, is like the functions of marketing are still blurred within those steps. And I think that's where we don't do it justice, not the, not the funnel itself, but the discipline of marketing, you know, and I think that's the problem here is like, Mm -hmm. then, you know, the biggest part is awareness. Well, 
okay, define awareness though. What is awareness? Mm. Isn't a programmatic ad awareness? Just because the medium that was bought through it and the targeting that you're applying to it is not, no, it's awareness. But all too often that becomes now it's, oh, no, 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 push that down to the bottom. That's like, you know, purchase intent. You're, you're doing different models behind that to target someone specific. I would argue that's still mm-hmm. awareness though. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I'm going off on a little tangent here, but like. Yeah. Well, I mean, you <laughs> and I've had this conversation a bunch, but, but it's fun one to have again. Cause I think this is really, it's a good, go- we should, at some point we, we've got to do this for you about intent. Yeah. Like, I think that would be great. Cause just because, so taking that example, like just because you get a one, best yeah. case scenario, let's say you're running a Ooh. search ad, let's do branded do keywords. Yeah. Right. Maybe 20, 25% Maybe. click-through rate. Right? Like that unbelievable right. <laughs> click-through rate. Most other search ads are going to be around somewhere in the three to five range, three to 5% yep. range. Most other, other digital ads are going to be, if you optimize for clicks, one, one-ish percent, right? Yeah. So even in the best case scenario where you've got branded search keywords and you got a 23% yep. click-through rate, I'm going to say 25 you still have 75% that don't yeah. click. So it's showing up. So is that not awareness, even though they're not clicking? hundred percent. You know what I mean? Like a hundred percent. So like it, it's hard to say the platform is the, is the deliverable. I think my takeaway from Jenny is like that you have something inside of the consumer's brain or the potential prospect or the prospect's brain, not even a current buyer, but a, a prospect's yeah. brain. That's what we have totally. to understand. Totally. And that's where it comes back. Like when we think about like your brand health trackers, what are you actually measuring and how often you're measuring it? That is essentially the, your, what's the right word here? Um, I don't know, the recipe, if you will. But it, it is actually mm-hmm. what you can use to defend the discipline that you represent. Without it, then you are the coloring department. But there's an opportunity here. It's like, hey, let's talk about net promoter score. I'm not going to talk about the the outliers and why maybe it's not perfect and, and whatnot. It is a metric, though. Share of voice, mm-hmm. share of search, brand reputation, all these things. Start tracking them because you can then attribute mm-hmm. systemically different points in time and how maybe spend or a new campaign or... Um, a rebrand affected a lot of those metrics. And then you can take that and say, hey, so here's what we can tell you from the brand side. Now, the problem that I have is like you have the the performance marketers on, on the one hand and you have, you know, the brand marketers on the other. They're all kind of pulling in their own direction. Sorry, in their separate directions versus kind of thinking about it holistically as one. I would argue that your brand health trackers and your metrics are, are also a byproduct of your performance marketing efforts as well. They're not, they're not, uh, what's the right word here? Um, they're not mutually exclusive. They all play into yeah. this. And that's how you unify sure. this under one kind of idea of marketing. So going back to that search, branded yeah. search keywords. So it, it, you're, if I'm getting what you're saying correctly, like that, those branded search keywords, you're, you're buying that based on, you can optimize for max CPC, right? Let's say so because I'm buying it for max CPC, I'm I'm 
arbitrarily claiming that from a perspective of performance exactly. marketing because I'm getting traffic yeah. from it and it's a measurable yeah. traffic and you know assuming you have 100% yeah. attribution and all yeah. that kind of stuff. And so you're discrediting the impact of that for any brand building because you're saying no no that's I'm arbitrarily saying this is performance marketing because I'm I'm using paid search the and therefore paid search is yeah and paid search is the tool for performance marketing not exactly. for brand building. But it's yeah. look that's it is dumb. dumb. It is dumb. <laughs> why? But, why do organizations insist yeah. in keeping these these two disciplines separate? I don't know. Yeah, they're not separate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they have to be because I mean, the consumer. Nobody goes through life thinking, oh. <laughs> This brand, I remember seeing this brand specifically yeah, on this. Yeah, yeah. I can't even remember. Like, I try and I try and be accurate. This is a funny one that I see, I catch myself doing all the time. I try and be accurate when I tell people I sent you a text or or a WhatsApp message or on in mail or on uh, yeah, yeah, Instagram yeah. DM or whatever or an email. And I'm like, and eventually I'm just like, fuck it, I can't even be bothered to like. I sent you a note yeah, yeah. like. Uh, I feel like I'm cheating myself by saying, like, I'm not really paying attention, especially then other, that's just for me, because I have a weird idiosyncrasy, but then seeing these messages from brands, like I'm, there's so many messages that I'm saying, and it, like, I don't differentiate, no. I'll, I'll often say in surveys, like, I paid search because that was a little thing that, yeah. you know, popped up maybe last in my mind, or I was in the hunt yeah. for something, and so it shows up. Um, but yeah, like I, there's an attribution mislabeling, I think. Yeah. And happening. we, I know we're picking on search here, but like, that's more of a behavioral, um, output that we've been trained to do now. Like the first thing that we will think of, we see, we were prompted by something on our desk in an image in an email or a thought from a conversation. We immediately just, you know, naturally go to say Google, you open up that search window and you start typing. Mm-hmm. That's just that's just a way for us to get to the answer that we're looking for quicker. That's mm-hmm. the shortcut. So the fact that it actually takes such a larger part of the attribution is is wrong in of itself. And performance market. I know I'm going off on another direction here. Not really a post pod for Jenny right now, but I have a fundamental mm-hmm. problem with this. Even though I've been a performance marketer for most of my career, and now <laughs> I feel like you've been awakening. I have had an awakening. Damn it. <laughs> Like it is. Yeah. Anyways, I don't know, man. Like it, I'm going to shut up now. No, no, it's, it's true though. But, but the other part about mental availability, like you, I wonder if there's a way to, uh, this is part of the 8,000. 8 million, 8 million. million. You're very specific on 8 million. So I'm like, Oh, okay. 8,364. Um, it it also is like how many times do I think of something throughout the day and don't use Google because yeah. the brand is yeah. top of mind or like I just know that I'm going to get this because it's already yeah. there. Like, you know what I mean? And so, or how many keywords are branded that I type into Google and I'm already looking for it because it's there. I remember that was an argument that we always had when I was in media, broadcast yeah. media. It was like, why would you... De- why would you let Google tell you? Why would you put your Why would you put your fate yeah. in Google's hands? 
Like just tell the customer what words to yeah. search for or tell the customer what you are and who you are and what you do so that they can type in your brand name instead of, you know, just the category. Actually, just think about the disruption we're actually witnessing today with the rise of AI, ChatGPT, Bing's incorporation of OpenAI, et cetera. And you will remember, even when we worked together, the idea of like, hey, let's start thinking about long tail search keywords. We never really, really thought about it. We did generic keyword lists. We did like, what, one or two, max three. We did broad match modifiers. We did some rudimentary, what at the time, what was available, if you will. Mm -hmm. But think about now long tail and how that's going to shape the way people search moving forward. So while it was mm -hmm. usually more succinct, easy language, there was like search language that you would use. Now it's just yeah. like language. So you're asking the questions outright that you want an answer to. That's going to change mm -hmm. not only how search is going to work, but it's also going to change on how, what bidding strategies look like later as Google kind of like accelerates mm -hmm. and looks to build on this as well. But anyways, that's neither mm -hmm. here or there right now. But it's just for me, it's fascinating. Like in the, what, how long we've been practicing digital marketing. 12 years for me, almost 15, maybe, um, how much that's going to change now moving forward because of AI. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, uh, just come back to Jenny again. Like I, I, there's the mantra that she talked about the designing for the category. That was a bit of an, aha I thought that was a great, like, I love that mantra. Yeah. The idea, the idea, yeah. Design for the category, analyze for the buyer, report yeah. for their brand. The, maybe actually it was a, just before then, but the, the category buyers are all pretty yeah. uniform was from one brand to another was like, I had never really, I mean, I guess I thought about that before, but I never really thought about that. And that if your brands makeup of customers doesn't reflect the category, then there's like an interesting opportunity for you to think about expanding and it, would be a strategic choice whether you say like, why do we not capture a reflection of the yeah. category buyers? Instead, we've got like just, I don't know, these 35 year old women that look like the Sally profile we created or yeah, something yeah, yeah. else, you know what I mean? And so that's kind of an interesting thing. Cause if there's a category of people that are buying the services and products you've got and you're intentionally omitting some of them, it's interesting I'm with thinking you. about why. No, I'm with you. And then I love the analyze for the buyer because then it puts back, the, you know, at the center of all this is exactly the, it's the consumer. So it's a consumer's voice. So design, sorry, then analyze for, you know, as you're built or designed for your category, then you're analyzing essentially for what the buyer wants, what they need. So that can help inform like product development and a lot of these other things as well. And then report for the brand. You know, for me, it's like, that's what the consumer sees anyways. Not somewhat we see internally mm -hmm. all the different elements. It's consumer facing. So I think it's a very simple mantra that can be followed and can be applied across, um, I, I would even say organizationally. Like this isn't just marketing here. No, and I know she alluded to it at the end, but um, physical yeah. availability falls into place with better brand health. And I think, you know, that's, you know, if if you traditionally think of physical availability as, say, a, an operations team or um, a real estate team, maybe that it has an influence yeah. over that. 
you can influence your brand metrics just by, if you're a retailer, let's say putting up more stores or, you know, if you're in digital and you've got an e-com space, finding more affiliates or putting up more search ads or whatever, whatever the case is. Like, I think there's, changes how you like i'm saying physical availability even so even though some of those things are digital but i'm I'm following they're the same in my mind but there's there's things you can change and influence from a physical availability that do i'm sure that's part of the book i'm excited to read it but i'm sure that's part of the impact of that brand health metric yeah yeah i think the net net of this is like everyone have like make sure you have a long hard look at what that checklist looks like or what your, your health tracker looks like decide, mm-hmm. you know, she brought up that, that great example of like brand rejection. It's like, yeah, follow yeah. that. Do you need to measure it at every turn? Probably not, but it is another mm-hmm. great one that, you know, you may need to be mindful of if you've, you know, for example, changed the label or you've done a rebrand or you had a huge investment on marketing dollars. You want to see what the output did rejection go up. Did it go down? It's just all of these things together help guide, you know, the the insights that you ne- may need to take action on subsequently. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. Like, she brought in maybe this was before we were recording, but she said, you know, she was having this discussion with, uh, I think it was the Mars CMO. I think she mentioned. Oh, I think she talked about in, that here. Oh, yeah. yeah. So if it was on, if it was on yeah. the pod, but yeah. everyone would have heard it. But it was interesting that they focused on the fact that at the time they made the decision that we're just gonna cut it because you know the amount of time we're all in here and we're not getting any any actionable insights that's unfortunate because you would have anticipated that there would have been more insights coming out of you know those brand health studies and and whatnot but i think it's it's a fundamental part of the way you're reporting your discipline mm-hmm. yeah and to her point too like i mean it could just be that your your brand metrics are re- Reporting and reporting on the same thing, just in multiple exactly. different ways, right? Like is, you know, preference really that different from oh, love yeah. or loyalty or, or yeah. you know, a high MPS score? Like, you know, they may be intended to be in different places of the buyer's journey, but are they, are they really saying anything different? No, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Another great one, man. Anyway, yeah, that was really good. We went on a little we did. there. Sorry, little <laughs> sorry, listeners. <laughs> Hope you can still follow the logic somewhere in there. Jesus. It's just the things uh, that just pop in your mind was... at some point. You're like, you know what? Now's the time I'm going to talk about it. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Give me my soapbox. I need that soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> All right, buddy. Yeah, this is yeah, another good one. This is great. Yeah, buddy. Thanks, V. All right. Adieu. All right. Adieu. (laughs) Ciao, Ciao, Ciao.